Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. It's one thing to buy a bottle of wine, even an expensive one, but it's something else to buy a vineyard, especially in France. My guest today did just that. He's Alex Gamble, author of Climbing the Vines in Burgundy, How an American Came to Own a Legendary Vineyard in France. It's published by Hamilton Press, and it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Alex Gamble, and that's G-A-M-B-A-L, go to climbingthevines.com, and you can follow Alex on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. It's good to be here. Well, you got hooked on wine at a relatively young age, so I guess my question right out of the wine box is, did the idea of owning a vineyard immediately follow that interest in your fascination with wine, or was it much, much later? It was much later. Um, I was uh, I had a very conventional upbringing in the Washington, D.C. area, kind of grew up with Mouton Cadet and Ruffino and uh, my dad's beer, my mother's C.C., on the rocks, uh, and, and 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 very much overcooked. My we called my mother's ch- overcooked chicken the bad hens. Um, but we all ate well, and we we weren't hungry. And um, it was just one of those things where, in the late eighties, late eighties, I got married young, had children young, and started hanging out at wine stores in Washington D.C. And um, rather than going to bars and clubs, my wife and I, we had little babies at home. So we had friends over and mm-hmm. I'd bring home interesting bottles of wine and it just kind of grew from there. And uh, as I joke and say, by pure dumb luck, I could remember what I could taste. <laughs> well, you, you end up in France for several decades. What's fascinating to me is how you were able to, I guess, cross that cultural barrier, that language barrier, that economic barrier, and be able to function as an owner of, of a vineyard? Well, it was, first off, it, it was, it took a long time. I mean, I think we have to look at, you know, I moved there um, when I was 36 years old with my wife and two children. And literally the idea was we wanted to take a year off, have a sabbatical, have a wonderful experience. And our attitude was that if it didn't work out, we'd come back to DC and have our lives there. So there was very little downside per se. And we were hoping that if if it worked out and the kids were happy, and that was the key, the kids, and they were mm-hmm. eight and 10 years old at the time, they were little kids, but we put them into immediately into French schools. They were bilingual in about five or six months, communicating after eight or nine weeks. And, you know, Burgundy has this, has this big B name. Um, it, 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 it's, it's an iconic name and area for, for the world of wine. But what makes it more interesting is the the fact that we were there in this small community. It's not a big community. And the kids were, you know, in, in local schools and all their friends' parents are winemakers. So that's how we became ingrained, if you will. It was very organic. Plus, I started by working with a very, very successful and uh, imp- exporter. And I got to work with fantastic winemakers. And from that, it all just happened. So um, it's... I, I think more importantly, we were open to the possibilities, and we knew we could always come home if if it didn't work out. Back to the parking lots, in other words. Yeah, back to parking. <laughs> yeah. I, I say that because Which, in your book you talk about your background, and that was part of it. Your family's parking lots. So yeah, you know, it, it was. You know, I grew up in D.C. in the city. Uh, it was my life. It was my backyard. I loved the people I worked with. 
I liked the business. It was just that it was also a two-person, uh, my father and his partner had started the business after World War II, classic uh, GI entrepreneurs. And, you know, they were in law school at G GW, George Washington. And after two years, they quit and started parking cars. You can imagine what their parents were thinking, you know. <laughs> <laughs> my dad was from Cole, was Old Ford, Pennsylvania, I mean, near Scranton. They were all coal miners, um, you know, basically Russian, Ukrainian Russians and Italians in the neighborhood. And then his partner was Polish from Syracuse. Uh, you can imagine what they were all thinking, the parents. <laughs> what are you idiots doing? You're giving up a career. For exactly. Solid income for, for yeah, solid income for some weird thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, absolutely amazing. But you 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 stuck it out when you made the move to France. You mentioned about the kids learning French relatively fast because they were in the French schools. What about you and your wife at the time? Did you know any French before you moved there? My wife already spoke very good French. I had my two years in high school and my one year in college where it all sounded like <laughs> proverbial Chinese to me. But, you know, I, I learned wine speak pretty quickly. That wasn't that hard. There are only so many words and you use them again and again. Mm -hmm. And also the business side, which I was strong in and I could help um, Becky Wasserman, the exporter I was working with, those terms are fairly international. So, um, you know, I, I could get by, but I really didn't get good till after my fourth year when I went to the wine school. I was turning 40 and went to the one-year wine program right there in Burgundy, all in French. And as I said, I would write my notes in Froglet, a little English, a little French, and um, go home at night and translate them again. And at that point, I finally got pretty good at it. And But then when I finally ran the business and had to go out there and negotiate, then you know that's when the, the proverbial rubber meets the road, and I um, got pretty good. And and trust me, I'm not going to be a, a, a UN translator. <laughs> <laughs> my, my my college roommate from North French with that redneck North Carolina North Carolina accent, I go sure am. <laughs> but I think more importantly is I I understand everything. I can read it, and I never had any ego about being good at it. I, I wanted to learn. So if there was a word I, if I were to understand, I mean, I would in negotiations, I'd stop and say, explain that to me. And people would laugh, but they knew I was following. And that was the main thing. Because mm -hmm. I, 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 I love the place. I love France. I love the people. I love the quirkiness, the difference. And to me, it was a, a, a real, it was a curiosity as much as anything else. I loved learning the culture. Did they accept you? You hear this you hear this a lot about the ugly American, and, and if you're not going to try to learn a little bit of French when you go to France to visit as a tourist, you may get the cold shoulder. At least that's the stereotype. But now you're there living and working in France, in Burgundy. Were you accepted, or did was there a slight aloofness or distance? You know, I, I, we, we were accepted because, well, one, when we got there, we were the only American family there. So I think that's, we, it was 30 years ago now, right. we arrived, May right. 93. And I, I, I'll repeat again, having the children there and going to birthday parties, going to Christmas dinner, Easter, marriages, funerals, end of the year school barbecues, we were part of the community. We, we, we were part of the fabric. 
And and then as I and, I and I was working for with again with with a fantastic exporter selling the best wine, some of the best wines in the world. And you know, I I knew I, I learned from them and I was curious. And then and I, luckily I had a facility to do it. I mean, that's the other thing. It wasn't, I mean, I I, I kind of figured it out. But they knew I was the real deal, and I mean, and I and I ended up knowing more about the vineyards. Could taste as well as everybody. And the other thing, people said, "Oh, some a lot of Americans said, oh, they, did they accept you?' Because they you probably were going to try and make American style wine." I wasn't a winemaker. I mean, I was just a, I was a guy hanging out at wine stores, and so I learned stylistically my wines are were burgundian they weren't american style wines i don't drink american wine sorry sorry my friends in california or oregon <laughs> some in oregon and i actually made a little wine in california but you know it's a different it's a different optic if you will it's a different is the same music timbre a different color and um that's what brought me into the place i just i, I felt at ease in it I, I, with the dirt and with the vineyards your book is is a combination of an insight into winemaking, into Burgundy, and into family dynamics and dealing with pain. So it's not just one thing. If there was one thing that you wanted to share with our audience about your book, what would that one thing be? Or there may be more than one thing, but I saw it as a multi-level it, it, it is. It's first off. It's not just a wine book, right? Um, you know, it, it, it's an entrepreneurial book. It's a family book. It's as I say, it's a little bit of a Julia Child. You know, you know, <laughs> learning the, the or uh, being there. You know, it's not a year in Provence because if you look read a year in Provence, a great book, lovely book, but they have no real friends. I mean, our friends are French. I mean, I go there now. My friends are French. And I think part of it was, you know, I remember we'd go to go to Paris and, and and be with other expats and they would, their only friends were other expats. And I go, I don't want to be around other North Americans. I moved to France to be part of the culture. And we, we went with that idea. Is it going to work? Is it not going to work? And if it doesn't work, we'll go home. But we wanted to make it work because otherwise it was just being a tourist. We didn't want to just be tourists. I, I think the book is... It also talks a lot about the wine business, and I, I, I try to. I, mean, I, I think some of my friends in the business are not going to be very happy with some of the things I say. But <laughs> uh, <so> tough, exactly. <laughs> You're telling the truth. <laughs> this, this great friend of mine from South Carolina with his wonderful accent. He, he was a PR guy. He goes, Alec, I think you write quite well, and what you write is quite funny. But call me crazy. I don't think it prudent to, to write and tell people that you, your investors invested in a shitty business and your customers are a bunch of assholes. Sell the business, then write the book. <laughs> well, so yeah, it's it's a funny thing because in in the book you were also talking about the when you decided to sell, which was I'm sure not a pleasant experience based on on the book. And how you were at that last point. I know I'm jumping ahead, but this stuck in my brain. How you were in France, it's a little different than here in the United States. But when you seal the deal in France, it's actually done electronically, the paperwork. You're not filing it physically. So you're in this modern office building, and you would expect things to function, such as Wi Fi. And no, it's not. And so after all this, endless negotiation and the 
tension and the pressure. And you finally get to the point, okay, we're ready to file the documents and you can't get a Wi-Fi signal. I thought my head was going to explode. I bet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've gotten very patient in my old age here. But that, I think, and plus, as, as you read, it was like 100 degrees. Yes. No oh, yes. I forgot to mention that the air conditioning was out. Air conditioning. Or they didn't have air conditioning, one of the two. But it was, yeah. it, it's, it's a green building. Yeah. <laughs> it's so called it green, the, green with mold from lack of air conditioning. Yeah. It was, it was one of those seminal moments <laughs> that, 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 that you know, tries men's souls, as they say. <laughs> Well, you had a lot of... We got got through it. (laughs) You did. Now, of course, there was personal tragedy with with your wife, which you talk about in the book quite openly as well. So as I said earlier, the book is not just one thing. It's a mix of a journey, an adventure, business, social interaction within France, and family life. And it has all these elements. Do you miss... France now or Burgundy specifically now that you're back in the United States? You know, I I miss my friends and I miss this life I had. But with what happened with my wife and I was, I'm a funny bird. When I decide to do something, I turn the key and I'm on to other projects. So um, I'm right now, I feel like I have a new, a, a, a new life new real estate projects, new mm-hmm. um, uh, charity projects. I've create, helped create a daycare center for 50, 60 kids, literally moving my old house. Um, so I'm, it, it's funny. I think about um, uh, Sandy Koufax with the Dodgers. Right. But I don't want to put myself in that same league. But, you know, at the height of his career, his height of his success, he walked away from it. And I felt I had, done about as much as I could do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when um, my wife passed and that piece of my life, because that was, I mean, France was home. I still have my home there. I'm going there in, uh, later this month or in October, I'm going there for six weeks. But I don't have anything, as Julia Child said, I don't have anything to do anymore. And and um, I go there now. I'm a tourist. I enjoy it. I see my friends. And also all my friends, I'm 66. All my friends and my children are, are 38 and 41, and all their friends are making the wine, just like I was a generation ago. So I think it's time to move on. And I think sometimes, and I saw this in too often in business, especially in family businesses, people's sense of who they are is their business. Mm-hmm. And I never thought of myself as just Alex Gamble, winemaker. I have a lot of other interests. And I was ready to do other things. So there's no, um, it was interesting. I, I got an email this morning from one of the people I sold the business to. And, you know, it was, I said, I've never, I have no regrets. And he said, mm-hmm. we have a wonderful tool now. We got great people making it. And I know who the winemakers are who've taken over the land. And I'm very happy about that. And it, it was the proverbial win win for everybody. Before you turn the key, though, yeah, before you turn the key, and some people would call it compartmentalizing, but, you're, you're turning the key and going on to another phase of your life. You did decide to write a book. So yes. clearly things were on your mind before you turned that key that you wanted to get that all down. Was it a sense of sharing memories with your kids who are adults now, with their 
their kids, which are your grandkids, or just letting people know what it was like in this moment of time to do these things? What was the, I guess, the rationale or the motivation for you, the, the burning desire to write this book? And again, let me just say the book's called Climbing the Vines in Burgundy, How an American Came to Own a Legendary Vineyard in France. I think it's probably more the latter. I'm a, I'm a good storyteller. I loved stories. My first job was teaching eighth grade English. I loved, loved to teach. And throughout my, and I, and every year, several times a year, especially the harvest, I would write long letters and notes to my mailing list about what was happening. And people just found them fascinating and fun. It was just like, I, and I'd make mistakes and I'd poke fun at myself. And I had many, many friends that you got to write a book, you got to write a book. So I literally in, in, in the spring of 17 sat down and in about six or eight weeks wrote most of the corpus, most of the main stories. Now, as I've learned, it's a lot of work. It's very publish. I'm very hard to refine something into a, a, a finished product. And that I grossly underestimated. No idea. It was that bad. But the stories were things I just told people, like I've already told some of the stories here with you. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's about, I think more than anything, it, it's the one thing about I write in the book is that, you know, when I was in the real estate business, there was real money involved and huge egos, but there was real money involved. <laughs> in the wine business, there's no money involved. And the egos of the people in the wine business make the real estate guys little lily potions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what drove me nuts I because everybody has an opinion. Everybody's a bloody expert, but no one's ever made one. No one's ever farmed it. No one's been out there. You know, if you, the proverbial walk the walk rather than talk to talk, talk's cheap. And I wanted to kind of put that out there. So people and the consumer gets very, um, gets all these messages that um, sometimes are good, but often contradictory, which is a a nice way of saying a lot of BS. And I wanted to kind of just cut through that. And um, I think as you read in it, there's some stories about that, about how we, the consumer, kind of gets, we get led astray by by some of the hype. And that's what I wanted to get out. And especially in a place like Burgundy, where it has this great reputation, yet Virtually all the winemakers, and now when I want to say winemakers, these are farmers. We are high-end farmers. These are, by and large, all fault, small family farms working it, and they're friends of mine, and we run into each other all the time. And that's this community, this shared sense of, you know, how are we going to make the best wine possible in a very, until recently, a very dodgy, climactic place. I mean, it, it, as I write, it's, it's about as far, 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 as far north as you can get red and white grapes ripe. Now, with temperature, ch- climate change, and weather change, that's a whole other book to write about. But, <laughs> you know, I just I, I wanted to get that out there for people, for the record. You mentioned uh, just a moment ago about the ego of, uh, of the wine people. Is there also an an arrogance in the sense that, or a snobbery would be the better term. There's always this association of snobbery with wine, not with basic wine, but with various wines from France or Italy, wherever they may be. You cut through that as well. well why, why does that still persist where people 
seem to think that they and, and it's not just I'm not, it's not even the producers at this point. You can see people, wine consumers, as I'll call them. You go to a party and everyone is using their nose and saying, "Well, this is this and this is that," and it's well, no, this is not. This doesn't have the right this and this doesn't have the right. Why does that still go on after all these decades? I I don't know. I think it's the same way. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned um, uh, what's the term um, um, the, the the bias, you know, positive bias. We want to we want to be experts. So I think you find this whether it's restaurants, gastronomy, music, um, art, um, you know, anything that there's a you know, and again, I, I talk about the word connoisseurship. Which you know comes from the French word connaissance, connaissance, knowledge. So it's not a bad word. It's not, but but, but connoisseur takes on this very negative thing. Instead of saying it's, it's knowledge, instead of spreading knowledge, you're kind of like keeping the knowledge in, and I know more than you, and that gives people this sense of ego and placement. You know, in this this very false and silly hierarchy, because it's just grape juice. Yeah, I, <laughs> and, 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 and and some alcohol. <laughs> it's alcohol. I mean, come on, it's fermented grapes, right? Not, I mean, right. It, and, it, it's and an so, insular world, isn't it? In that sense, it, it is. But I think you get that in any of these kind of, if you will, artistic endeavors, and it is an artistic endeavor when you get at that highest level. I mean, making right. wine is not hard. Making great wine from great vineyards is a whole different kettle of fish, so to speak. Yeah, and doing it season after season. That's not season after season. Yeah. I think this is what I also talk about is that, you know, we don't look at it as it's a one off. I mean, we are it, it's it's a cycle. One year leads in the other. One year creates the next year and vice versa. And so you have to look at it glo- holistically um and, and organically as 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 you just can't you know pick out little pieces. It's all together. And that's why these the, the, these winemakers, these these as I say, vigneron, literally wine growers, as if the bottle of wine was growing on the on the vine. You know, we don't separate out the winemaking process from the grape growing process, by and large. And I think that's what I learned over all those years. What happens to the grapes that you grow? You don't have a operation on the land itself to then process the wine, or do you? Or did you? Well, I had an operation in the center of Bone, and if you will, the wine town. And usually, all these winemakers have a, a you know winery slash what we call couvery. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes very sophisticated and large for the, some of the big operations. Sometimes very rudimentary, and they still make wonderful wine. But I think what's difficult. I always joke and say, people say, you know, take me to your vineyard, take me to your like leader, like to your chateau. And I right. go, well. And my chateau is my bar- my 18th century, 15th century stone barn up in the hills with no vines around it. And I have 40, in my 30, what are, how many acres? I had 35 acres of vines and I had 45 separate parcels. Some, some way far away, some close together, but all individual that had to be managed. And I was very typical. So we then bring all those grapes back harvest those grapes and bring them back to our couvery, our winery, where we then make the wine in one central place. But it's not as if we have the 
the house and the winery and and mm-hmm. 30 acres around us that's in you know places like bordeaux which is a whole different um operation than, than burgundy which is again is still very s- small high-end family farms um you know and you, you go into this you know world famous winemaker and he or she will come in off their tractor and take off their overalls and do a tasting for you and you go and they put their overalls on their back on the tractor that's what we love about it I mean, that's yeah. what makes it I mean, there, 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 there's no pizzazz as, as our parents would say yeah this, that, this is not that, showbiz yeah this is farming 101 yeah down to earth and in the earth Absolutely. yeah exactly Absolutely. do you think that somebody could replicate not all of your experiences but the experience of buying a vineyard in france today and make it work or are the times so changed and the economics so changed and the communications so changed that it would not not necessarily work i think you could but it wouldn't be in burgundy you know the land costs were already ridiculous when i started and now i was running some numbers it just it'll blow your mind what these top vineyards even average vineyards so um and it's just and because of and i write about it because of the the napoleonic law and the diffuse nature of ownership the complex nature of ownership it's really really hard to own anything um but in other areas of france um the the loire places like that i think there's still a lot of opportunity but burgundy is tough i mean that was one of the reasons i i got out and i wrote about that is that i felt like the game had changed and you know and i was a very aggressive real estate player in it um, but I was not in the in 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 the league of be able to to drop 15, 20, 30 million euros mm-hmm. um on, on on land purchases. It's just it's become like that. Um and I go, mm-hmm. well, it's time to move on. I mean, I got other things to do. I know that you talked about turning the key and as you say, moving on, but have you thought about keeping not a foot in it, maybe a toe in that business and acting as a consultant for people? I th- I've thought about it, but I don't think I one want to work that hard. <laughs> and, well, and part of it, frankly, and I'm, I'm joking, part of it is I don't want to travel that much anymore. I traveled so much when I was in the business trying to sell wine, raise money, market it, that I, I, I like, um, I've become much more of a homebody. And I think people will also, they might I, I, have, I have a sense that they won't do what I tell them to do. <laughs> why? Why is that? <laughs> well, I mean, for example, I, I, I made wine with one of my dear friends, a couple of great, great friends and partners in California, in Santa Barbara, for three years, 2016, 17, and 18. And I remember doing this tasting in Washington, and a woman asked me, you know, why can't they make, uh, they, you know, us, they can't make burgundy style wines in california and i said well i think we can and i'm actually doing that but is there a market for those wines and yeah you might be able to make 500 a thousand cases a year to sell but you're not going to make 10 20 100,000 cases because that's not the market that's not this taste profile of california wines and it's not a it's not a right or wrong answer it's just the reality and so I made with my partners some fabulous Chardonnay Pinot Noir from Santa Rita Hills, very much in the, 
I would say, and I hate to say Burgundian style, because everybody over there, everybody in California says, oh, I'm making in the Burgundian method. And, I, and we go, what does that mean? <laughs> um, I'd say it's much, my, one of my partners said, not in this deal, said, Alex, this is not Burgundian, but it's definitely Gamble style. Oh, I like and that. I took that as a compliment. Absolutely. Okay? Yeah. And so, and so, you know, yes, I can do that. But the reality, Ira, is to go out and sell wine, create a brand, it's so hard because of the distribution. And I talk about that in the book. And, you know, I don't want to work that hard. I, we have about a hundred cases of this stuff left to sell. And I'd love to sell you a case. <laughs> Everybody call me, look it up. Get 100 more cases. I want to shut it down. I had enough. And the wine's fantastic. But, you know, I just, I mean, I honestly, I joke and say, I'm working hard as hard as ever at different things. And I'm, and I'm happy to be doing that. Just, it's, I had enough, had enough of it. That's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Alex Gamble. He's author of Climbing the Vines in Burgundy, How an American Came to Own a Legendary Vineyard in France. It's published by Hamilton Press. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about Alex Gamble, that's G-A-M-B-A-L, you can go to climbingthevines.com and order your case of wine. And <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you can do it that way. You can follow Alex on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. I assume it's legal to order it on the wine, on the website. We'll find out. Yes, we can. Okay, okay excellent. And it's all legal. <laughs> oh, excellent. Okay, so follow him. It's definitely on, kosher. It's kosher. Okay, excellent. <laughs> so go to the website, climbingthevines.com. Alex, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much. It was delightful. Appreciate Same here. It. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.